Um, we spent the day honoring military as well. I teach over at Valley Christian High School, and we had a, a military chapel, and uh, my stepfather served in Vietnam. My dad uh, was 30-plus uh, years in the Air National Guard and uh, commanded an area port squadron, and and just hearing stories, kind of growing up in it and hearing stories um, and then talking to other veterans. For most veterans, there is this feel that um, when you serve, it just kind of gets in your blood. It's in your, it's in your DNA. It's just who you are. And, and there's a camaraderie. There's a brotherhood. And, um, and we certainly honor you today. And, and I guess I want to lead tonight with transitioning from that into a question for Christians in the room. Is that true of your relationship with God? Is, is Jesus Christ such a part of you? Is he such a, a facet of your life? Is he in your DNA that you wouldn't know how else to, to live? You wouldn't know how else to describe your life, but to include him when someone asks you, tell me about yourself. Uh, typically when we ask the military to tell us about themselves, they include that as a part of their life, uh, especially if they served uh, over, overseas or on tour, that that's a part of who you are and you can't change that. And, and I just wonder for the believers in the room, is that true of the way you view your walk with Jesus? That if someone asks you who you are, it's not just what I do or how many kids I have or where I went to school, but I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's not that I'm being braggadocious or I'm trying to one-up someone. I just don't know what else to tell you. It would be foolish for me not to mention that because he's in my DNA. Is that true of you tonight if you claim that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? So the second question, I guess, if you answered yes to the first question is, why? Why is he a part of your DNA? What, what is it about Christianity when you have a multitude of options to choose from, you have the buffet of world religions, why Christianity? And I'm curious tonight as to what our answers would be to that because, guys, if our answer is something along the lines of it's popular, it's trendy, my neighbors are Christians, I grew up as a Christian, I'm not sure that that will suffice when what Pastor Lynn talked about last Sunday, when trials hit and suffering hits and, and even doubt hits, that I'd be willing to stand before persecution, that I'd be willing to stand before the enemy, if you will, and hold my ground and say, I can't, I can't, I don't know all the answers here. I don't know exactly how to solve all the world's problems, but I can't deny what I know to be true, which is Jesus Christ lived 2,100 years ago, he's alive and well today because he died and was resurrected from the grave. I don't know what else to tell you, but I know that to be true. Not to be too far with the military cliches, but, but would you take a bullet for that? Would you take a proverbial bullet for your faith in Christ? Do you believe in this so much so that outside of these four walls, you would withstand persecution. You would withstand the trials, not just that life brings you, but that people bring you by way of this can't be true. What you believe can't be true. Because we're about to encounter Stephen who, uh, like many people that will follow him, had to make a decision. And it wasn't a decision that he could give a whole lot of thought to. It wasn't a decision that he could plan out and plot his course and again, much like the military stories that I've heard, often in times of war, you have to make split-second decisions. And typically they're based on what do I know to be true? And so Stephen, we find, is in a position where he's being challenged with his faith and now he has to make a determination. I have one of two ways to go here. I can appease the enemy. I can appease the people persecuting me, the people asking me questions, and just tell them what they need to hear to get out of the situation. Or I can just tell them what I know to be true and take whatever comes my way. Okay, so we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 6. Um, we left off last week in verses 1 to 7, and I just want to recap, I guess, a few things um, because we, we kind of had to push that real, real quickly toward the end there. What I mentioned was that you're here for a reason. 
We kind of looked at this uniqueness that God has made each one of us, even to the person sitting next to you. That there's no uh, coincidence in the Christian life. There's no random acts in the Christian life. But that God had a purpose in putting you here on this earth during this time, in this location, and it is for a reason. And I, I think I echo what Pastor Lynn said on Sunday, and even up to the trials and, and persecution and storms we face, those are all there for a reason. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God in his um, cosmic workshop crafted you, specifically you, for a reason, for a purpose? And the reason we said that was because the apostles were challenged with there is some uprising amongst a large group of new Christians. And some of the widows weren't getting their, their daily needs met. And so the apostles came before the congregation. And at this point, it's many thousands of people. And they said to these people, listen, our job, God has made us to pray and to teach the word of God. Those are our two primary responsibilities. So find for yourselves... People, specifically men in this case, that are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and are of good reputation, and let them take care of the daily needs of the people. And so the congregation agreed to that, and they found seven men uh, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and full of a good reputation, Stephen being one of them. And that's where we kind of left off, and I, I challenged us all, I guess, to, to try to dig a little deeper into, God, why am I here? It's a fair question to ask, and I, I don't think we're being, you know, um, kind of out there when we ask that question. I think it's a fair question that we need to settle, why am I here, God? With that said, and I left last night, or last week, uh, giving you some, some tips on, you know, it's, it's find your passion, find your skill set, find your spiritual gift mix. You can go online and take, and take assessments and and try to put those three things together. What are my passions? What are my skill sets? And what are, what are my spiritual gifts? And if I kind of make concentric circles and they all overlap. And what are, what are those two or three or four things that I feel like I could do well? And maybe, maybe that helps answer the question, why am I here? I want to also then, as we look at those first seven verses again, I guess I want to remind us of this as well. You don't need to always wait to find that answer to serve. Does that make sense? For instance, I've got two great godly men in orange vests up here that are running mics. Um, we needed people to run mics. So they didn't need to come to me and say, well, Greg, I've prayed about this and I feel like my spiritual gift is, you know, running and... You know, I've run the Boston Marathon and the New York City Marathon. I'm good with a microphone. I used to run track with the relay, with the baton, so I feel like I could hand it off real well. And No, we just needed a couple guys to show up and be faithful and just sit up here. And when you have a question or a comment, you raise your hand and they're going to run mics. And guys, I would argue this anecdotally. I think that 90% of what the church needs are just able bodies. I think 90% of what we do around here, we just need help. Uh, just, just be available. Be a, love the Lord and make yourself available. Okay, so I just want to make that clear that when you hear the call from up here that, hey, we need help in childcare, we need help with youth, we need help in small church, we, we just need help serving at the carnival, we need help. You don't need to do, you know, you don't need to go on a prayer walk and, you know, go fast for a month. Um, just sign up. Because guys, I, I, you know, experientially, I can tell you that, that some of the ways we find out what we're supposed to be doing long term is by being faithful in the short term, just being open to anything. And what we find out is, you know what? I tried this. I'm, I'm not a big fan. I'm not, I'm not real patient with this crowd. Or I'm not real good with this you know, tangible thing, or I'm not real good at managing this, or, and so you know what, that's probably not what God is calling me to do long term. That helps weed out things. So get involved, get, get involved, jump in, serve, find out what, what you're good at, find out what, what you're not good at, and, and so just, just jump in. Um, these particular men in verses one through seven, they met the requirements. They were full of spirit, full of wisdom, and of good reputation. And that's important. And so a couple of things from last week. Um, no job is too small. 
to have integrity. We mentioned that last week. These guys were doing the daily needs of the church, and yet the requirements were just about to, you know, if they were up here preaching the Word of God, it was the same requirements. Be full of wisdom. Be full of the Spirit. Have Jesus in your life, and, and have a good reputation. The sum of your choices is your reputation, so what have you been doing before you get into that action? So no job is too small. And then finally, in verses 1 through 7, I think the body grows when everyone does their part. I think the body grows when the foot does the footwork, when the arms do the arm work, when the eyes do the eye work, when the ears do the ear work, the body grows. And we see that at the bottom of verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. If you look at verses 1 through 7, it's a phenomenal pattern that I just want to mention here because I think churches sometimes suffer when they don't follow this pattern. And so notice, I want to get into verses 8 and following, but notice the pattern here. Anita rises. So the apostles, the leaders of the church, call together the church. They're not, they're not hiding things. They don't go behind closed doors. And they lay out the plan for the church. And then they tell the church, you make the decision. Pick from yourselves seven godly men, full of spirit, full of wisdom, full of reputation. And it says in verse 5, and the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And so they didn't push it back off to the leaders. They didn't say, no, you guys go pick people. But pick from amongst yourselves. Why is that critical? Because part of this was a good reputation. Well, who knows who has a good reputation but you all. You know if the person sitting next to you has a good reputation. So why would I pick? And the church found approval. The apostles, though, notice, set the criteria and they gave the approval. And so notice when... Uh, after in verse 6 and these they brought these seven men these they brought before the apostles and after praying the apostles laid their hands on them and basically blessed them give opportunities to the people let them be involved in the process don't don't you know give away all the authority don't give away all the responsibility they set the ground rules they let the people choose and then the apostles did have the final word, final say. They approved and they prayed over their people. The upside is complete ownership. How many of us have been a part of an organization or we work for a company where it's so top down that you really just feel like, I'm, I'm, I work for my paycheck. I don't make any decisions. I don't have any, I mean, I make my, my little decisions in my little world, but I don't, I'm not really involved. There's no buy-in you know why? That's, that's why Starbucks, who else? Google. Uh, we'll give you stock. We'll, we'll make you a part of this. Now there's buy-in. You work hard, we make money, you make money. Everyone wins in this situation. I think it's a perfect plan. And I just wonder why people don't choose to do this more often. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's an authority issue. I don't know if it's a power struggle. But I see this as a, as a wonderful way to do church. It, at least... I can see that from Acts chapter 6, okay? Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 8 then. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Isn't this amazing that a guy that's doing the daily work, serving people, hanging out with the people, rubbing shoulders with the people, is full of wisdom, full of spirit, good reputation, and he's doing great signs and great wonders. I, I just, I find that amazing that God would choose to to, to use someone kind of behind the scenes, if you will, um, to do such amazing things. But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Listen to this, and this is my first point tonight. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. See, I asked that question early on because I wanted to force you to internally, I guess, come up with an answer. Why do I, why is Jesus a part of my DNA? Let's just say he is for most of us in the room. You're here on a Tuesday night. You could be doing a bunch of other things. I got to assume that most of us in here, Jesus is a part of your life. He's a part of your DNA. Why? 
And can I just applaud one of the answers you can have? Which I think Stephen gives right here, which is Christianity is logical and it's rational. If Jesus is a part of your DNA because you believe that Christianity is logical and rational, I think you're in good company here. I, 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 I know that we live by faith. I know that I step out in faith, that I haven't met Jesus personally, physically. I haven't heard an audible voice of God. I wasn't here when the Bible was compiled and written. So this is by faith. With that said, an argument can be made fairly safely that Christianity is very logical and very rational. And that's just standing on its own. Compared to other belief systems or worldviews, it sometimes becomes really rational and really logical, but not even compared to other religions. Standing on its own, we have a guy here that again is a daily worker. He's not well-versed or studied or he's not a rabbi. He's just a guy doing God's will. And yet he's, the, the, the scriptures say they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And we're going to see here in chapter 7, he just lays out logic to these people. And it frustrates them to no end. Do you believe that Christianity is, is worth talking about in a calm, rational, logical way? I've, I love my Pentecostal brethren. I love my Assemblies of God brethren. I find it energetic. But you don't shout anyone into heaven. You don't. You don't dance anyone into heaven. Be careful here, but you don't speak tongues anyone into heaven. You don't. And I'll say this, guys. You don't debate or argue one in anyone into heaven either. But there's got to be something to be said about the rationality and logic of Christianity. And, and, and Stephen's about to, about to give into um, when they bait him with, well, tell us about it. He goes about and tells them about it. Um, notice what he didn't say, by the way. And when it says they were unable to cope with his wisdom, again, in chapter 7, he's going to lay out basically the whole Old Testament. He doesn't say anywhere in chapter 7, listen, I believe this. Well, why do you believe it? Well, because it's, you know what? It's in the Torah somewhere. I don't know where. I can't really point you to it. But it's in, it's in the Torah somewhere and that's why I believe it. Hey guys, can I just draw a little close to us this evening? Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks, what is the hope you have within you? 1 Peter 3.15. He doesn't say that to teachers. He doesn't say that to rabbis. He doesn't say that to the religious leaders. He says it to believers in Jesus. So set apart Christ as Lord in your life. Make Christ a part of your DNA. Okay, I've done that. Don't force the issue. Just be ready. We need people on street corners. But he's saying, just be ready to, to give a defense. To give a reason. Why do you have hope in you? So I come to us this evening on behalf of Stephen, I guess, as our model... Do you have a defense in you ready to tell somebody, neighbor, coworker, uh, bus driver, uh, taxi cab driver, whomever, the hope that is within you? Because guys, if you know Jesus, you should have hope in you. If you know Jesus, there should be a joy in you that other people see. And goodness to gracious, they're going to come and ask you one day, why do you have hope? What's, why are you so happy? Why are you so joyful? Are you ready at that point to say, here's the deal. Um, Jesus Christ came and died for me. Because according to Romans chapter 3, we're all sinners. 
Because of Adam in Romans chapter 5, through one man, sin entered the world. And so because of that, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, Romans 5.12. And Romans 3.23 says we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so I woke up to that reality one day and I realized that it's not just this, this life on earth isn't just a wash. But Romans 6.23 tells me that because of my sin, there's a payment, there's a, there's a payment plan scheduled for me and that's death. And I didn't want that. And so God came along and said in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrated his love for me, but while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe that of all the wrong things and bad things I've ever done, even as a kid, that God loved me so much that Christ would die for me. And so I found out in the book of John in chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so there was a day when I confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and made him my Savior. And to wrap this up, uh, you've probably seen John 3.16 signs at stadiums or games. And God so loved me that he gave me his only son that if I believe in him, I won't perish. I won't have that payment of sin uh, that's death, but rather I get eternal life. And that's my story. See, guys, that's a story that's founded in the Bible. Now, guys, again, that's not, you know, that's just, those are just some verses that shout out our, each one of our stories because every one of us has a unique, the way we came to Christ. But that's a universal story that we should be sharing because that happened to each one of us who know Jesus. Exactly in that order, by the way. So does that sound logical or rational or... Or, well, tell me your story. Well, I don't know. I just met Jesus and I fell in love with him and it's been just an adventure ever since. And, well, what has he done for you? I don't know. He's helped me. Well, where, where in the Bible does it say he helps you? I, it's in there somewhere. I don't know. What do you expect from me? Go ask my pastor. Go ask the church leaders. They're the ones who do the Bible studies. Go talk to them. I just, I just know Jesus. See, guys, I think as a whole, okay, I'm just saying this, is, I think we can do better as a whole. I think that the world needs to see more logic and rational discussions amongst Christians to the non-believer as to why I believe what I do. I don't wake up mindless. I don't wake up just walking by blind faith. There was a day back in 1986, I made a rational decision, a logical, as best as I could tell, God, I, I don't know where Christ is. He's risen and I can't find the body. And guys, get, I don't know if we have the, um, the PowerPoint up here. Um, is it up? Okay, is it up now? Can you hear me now? How about now? Do you see anything? I just clap when you let me know. But do you realize that you know, we base our whole belief system on this book, right? And Stephen was going to, he's about to base his whole life on this, on the Torah. He's about to base his whole existence, because he doesn't know what the Sanhedrin's going to do to him right here. So he's about, so he starts with wisdom. He starts with knowledge, with logic. And they get ticked at that. Do, is that the way we treat this? Or do we just jump in? And again, I'm not excusing the fact that we need to experience God and have a relationship with him, and that is intangible. But I think sometimes we lean way too far over on the side of, well, I'm just going to, you know, fall in love with Jesus more and more and just, you know, throw worship CDs in my car. Great. And, you know, come to things like this and, and learn, you know, how do I get this? Because, guys, our whole existence basically is based on this. I find it fascinating that where this came from, uh, oh, that's why. How about now? He's probably yelling at me back there. Hey, why don't you plug it in? All right. Um, this, is, this is from Ryrie. I don't know if you, know, if you can see this or if it even makes sense. But guys, this is how our Bible came to us. Do you, do you realize how we got this book? It didn't drop out of heaven. It didn't, you know, one guy sat in a closet somewhere and wrote it. But, but Ryrie, uh, one, of, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, um, put this little chart together, and I just, I find it fascinating. I don't know, maybe you don't, but um, this is, see if I can do this here. Um, 
So this is thoughts in God's mind, okay? This is where it all started, right? God had thoughts. That's where it all started. And he wanted to get those thoughts to us. So the vehicle is revelation. He revealed his thoughts, not to everyone, but he revealed his thoughts to 40 authors. And this was over a 1,500-year period on three different continents in three different languages. Just kept revealing his thoughts to 40 different people. And these are these human authors. And he planted those thoughts in their minds. And through the vehicle of inspiration, which is God-breathed, we have the scriptures. We have the original manuscripts. Now, you know what? You know what we don't have anymore? By the way, the original manuscripts. Gone. We don't have them. So what do we have? Well, they wrote down the original manuscripts. And in 397 AD, uh, at the Council of Carthage, they basically closed the canon. The canon is a rule. It's a rod. It's a, it's a measuring rod, if you will. It's the, it's the Greek word for it. And they closed it. Basically, uh, the council got together in Carthage and said, these 66 books are what we will consider the New Testament and Old Testament canons. And there were others they could have chosen from. So they used a bunch of different measurement tools. Did the new church use it? Did Jesus ever quote from any of the books? And if so, which ones? Um, does it have internal consistency with other books? Etc., etc. The biggest one was, what are the letters the New, the New Testament church is passing around? And so by the 4th century, they bound it up basically and said, these 66 books here, this is what we're going with. But again, over time, we've lost the originals. Now we have copies of the originals. Thousands and thousands and thousands. Well over 10,000 pieces or copies of manuscripts. You may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was one of the greatest discoveries in the 1940s, 1947. A young Bedouin shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave, broke some pottery, found this great discovery, almost the entire book of Isaiah intact. Unbelievable discovery. And here's the deal, guys, with archaeology. And I'm not versed in this. Just, I mean, I just casually, whenever some dig is going on and do you know what archaeology does in the Middle East? It confirms this book. When archaeologists dig in places where the Bible said there were cities or people groups, it confirms it. I don't know if any of you go to bed worrying, gosh, I hope they don't do another dig in Philippi or in Galatia or in Corinth because then the whole thing's blown. Then we have to give this up and go do some other... No, we don't do that. We go to bed at night thinking, dig more. <laughs> Let me know what you find, because we're that confident. Through textual criticism, men and women who take the original Greek, the Koine Greek, and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, they translate it into Greek and Hebrew Bibles. That is then translated into English Bibles. That's how we got our Bibles. That's how the Bible you have in front of you is right here. And the beauty of it, guys, is there's like God and man, and they kind of just, there's a beautiful symmetry going on here a beautiful relationship where God didn't just birth the Bible out of the ground and we just have it now but rather he used man and continues to use us in pretty miraculous ways do you know do, are you, do you feel comfortable talking to someone about this because the challenge that you'll hear and I'll hear is this is just a book of lies book of fables book of myths and when we say things like well I disagree why do you disagree what reason do you have to disagree it pains me when we say things like, well, um, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E, you know, and we walk away. Oh, what is that? I mean, that's not rational. At least this gives some logic where you can say to someone, hey, can we just like compare? If, does that bother you to compare? And feel free to ask them questions. Well, what worldview do you take? What religion are you a part of? Do you know what came out today, or actually yesterday? Um, I don't know if we have this. Is it still up there? Okay, good. Do you see this? Um, the, the Mormon church just declared on the 10th, is this the 10th? Yeah, uh, the date there on the 10th, that they're, they're now declaring that Joseph Smith had up to 40 wives. Why is that a big deal? I thought Mormons were polygamous. No, polygamy, Mormons officially ended polygamy in 1870. 
I think Woodruff ended it, the fourth president. But Smith, if you go to like the Mormon temples or visitor center, their genealogy backs up to Joseph Smith and his wife Emma. And for years they preached he was monogamous. They, like polygamy was allowed, but our founder, our leader, no, he was monogamous. Not according to recent essays. This, by the way, this is the New York Times. This is an article from the New York Times. Um, it's on CNN. It's on Yahoo. It's all over the place. The reason that the Times picked it up was because the Mormon church sent this out. These are essays written by the Mormon church, the higher-ups in the Mormon church. And what they want to do for the younger generation is they want to address controversial issues and try to get ahead of the media. Rather than a 17-year-old Mormon teen, you know, surfing online and picking up some information and then asking their, uh, you know, their elders at the ward, hey, what's up with this? They're getting ahead of it. So there's a series of these. Started back in 2012 on godhood, on, you know, just the controversial issues. But this is by far the latest one and the most challenging so far because, because some of these 40 women um, were well underage. In fact, one they say was, I think the, essay, the essays they came out with are the documents they have back from the 1830s and 40s claim that one was a few months shy of 15. So that's problematic. The second reason is because some of these wives were married to other people. That becomes problematic with adultery issues. See, that's not good. Now, I say that, guys, not to bash on Mormons, but just to say this. Are you a part of something that you have to wake up the next day and say, maybe it wasn't that logical. Maybe it wasn't that rational. That I put, I drink the Kool-Aid in this bucket right here. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhism, you know, whatever it is. Because, guys, you've drunk the Kool-Aid with Christianity. Is it logical? Have you ever had someone challenge you on the Trinity? Um, this is the best, again, I can come up with. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. I like this image because the Trinity is a tough one. The Trinity gets us into all kinds of problems because as believers, we think, well, there's got to be a chapter that talks about the Trinity. And there's not. You have to piecemeal verses together. You have to prove that God is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit's God. You have to prove that God's eternal, Jesus is eternal, the Holy Spirit's eternal. So just a couple of suggestions. If you read Genesis 1, 1 to 3, uh, you see in the beginning who created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Go to Colossians 1, read verses 15 to 17. Guess who the creator of all things is in that passage? When in doubt, always say, no, say Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the creator in that passage. Well, they can't both be unless they're both God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Unless you think that that was some kind of like, hey, I'm on, like when I, I root for the Steelers, I root for the Celtics, I root for the Yankees, okay? So if I, and I root for the Sun Devils and uh, I root for Phil Mickelson. Okay, that's my, that's my baggage right there. And so if I say, hey, the Yankees and I, like we won the World Series kind of a thing. Wait, we didn't win it. I wasn't there. But we say that as a part of a team. So some people think, well, Jesus was just saying, hey, I'm on God's team. Like I and the Father are one. The next verse in John 10, 31 says, and they picked up stones to kill him. These monotheistic, radically monotheistic Jews heard him clearly. He was claiming deity. So I like this image because this image says, hey, God's not Jesus. Jesus isn't the spirit. The spirit's not God, but they're all God. Go figure that out, right? That'll give you a headache. Here's the problem, guys. It, so, so rather than just saying, well, it's just confusing, so, you know, I just believe by faith. The problem is the reason I believe in the Trinity is because I can't deny passages that say Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit's God, God is God. And what, you know, speaking of Mormons, what Mormons claim is, well, how could Jesus then pray to himself? Well, he wasn't. How does Jesus not know when the Son's going to return if he's God himself? It's a great question. It's confusing. It, it causes me sometimes to get on my knees and say, God, I'm just racking my brains here because you're infinite and I'm finite and I can't get you all the time. So when I say Christianity is logical, please don't hear me say I figured it out. Because that, that, that can't be. But guys, the other option is, well, I just, I just go with whatever's trendy. And if that's the case, seriously, become a Scientologist. That's the coolest self-made 
it's all about you religion out there. But I believe that Stephen's about to show us here, no, 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 no. You can, you can believe this. And you don't have to fly off the, the logical handle to do that. You don't have to lose your mental whereabouts to believe in Christianity. It says here, and yet they were unable to cope with wisdom in the spirit which, we, which he was speaking. And guys, so here's the deal. Here's, that's the first point is Christianity is logical. The second point is sin looks for more sin to win. If you talk to someone about your faith and they're not going to buy it, they may look for more reasons, sinful reasons, to not buy it. For instance, and, they, and verse 11, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribe, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now remember back in chapter 5 what Gamaliel's wisdom was to these people? What was Gamaliel's message to the people? Don't act with rashness. Don't act with um, irrationality. But let this thing play out. They do the exact opposite here. It's amazing how when someone gives us sound advice, we often don't take it when we, when we have herd mentality, right? When we just follow the herd, we see this in Luke chapter 23, again, with the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate is trying to reason with these people. What has this man done? But it says he gave in to them because there was such a stir, there was such a, an outcry, crucify him, crucify him that politically he realized it will be death if I don't give them what they want. We have the same situation here. This man is trying to reason with them logically and they go irrational on him. And guys, I'm here to tell you, sometimes sin will use more sin to win its case. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't get frustrated at that. Don't say to people, you're acting irrational. You're not using logic here. They may not. They may have blind eyes and deaf ears. And often, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, we will add another layer of sin to just, just to win, just to prove our point. Here, they find false witnesses. They don't want to debate him. They don't want to reason with him. They just want to win. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've ever read it. There's another book called, more modern version, called Jesus Freaks. I'd encourage you. Uh, I had a copy in my, my classroom. I forgot to bring it tonight. It's a book full of um, stories of men and women who have given their lives for the cause of Christ. And guys, do you know a definition of a martyr isn't someone that actively walks into some place and, and blows himself up or whatever our modern definition is. But rather, a martyr is someone who is able to give a sound defense for their faith and people just don't want to hear it, so they kill him for it. And, that, and this book, especially the Jesus Freaks book, brings you all the way up to 20th century. People are still dying today for their faith because it's in our DNA. Now, most of us aren't going to be put in that position, but if you were, this is the incredible stories. Mom's watching... Six or seven sons get executed over a series of weeks because of their faith and none of them will deny it. Not even her. And they chose, in one case, they chose her to be last so she could watch each one of her children get executed in various methods. Hanging, drownings, quartering, filleting. And each and every time she grieved over the death of her sons and then she was last and her final words was, I can't, I can't deny what I know to be true. Good, cut her head off then. And, and story after story after story. Of course, the gladiators in the Colosseum and Nero and torching Christians, etc. But guys, that fast forward 2,000 years up to the 20th century, it's still happening today. All the way up to Columbine, right? Cassie Bernal. And, and more. It's in, it's in Stephen's DNA. He can't deny it. So he's just trying to, he's just trying to reason with these people. Why are you doing all these signs and wonders? And he wants, to, he, wants to, he wants to use this wisdom here and they don't want to stand for it. 
And then when they get done accusing him falsely, look at verse 15. It's like God keeps dropping little miracles their way. And they just won't buy it. Stephen, in verse 8, performs great wonders and signs among the people. Just like John and Peter did in chapter 3. And drop down, now they accuse him, secretly induce men to falsely accuse him. They drag him away, put him before the council. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now go back to Numbers chapter 23. You'll see the same thing happen with Moses. Moses comes down off Mount Sinai. He's got the two tablets with him. And how did how'd they see his face? Radiant. Shekinah glory shone like an angel. This is not like, oh, I'm catching a bad angle of him. Like the sun is kind of hitting his face, you know. And, you know, you know it's kind of, something's happening like, like miraculously to, to, the, to Moses and to Stephen here. They don't even know what's going on. But when you see it, people were seeing his face just shining. And you would think that that would be evidence enough. Like you would think the council People that are rational would say, hey, maybe this guy's right. Maybe Gamaliel was right. Maybe this thing can't be stopped, but no. Rather, the high priest in verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so? I'm going to give you one chance here, Stephen. Go for it. And for time's sake, uh, and I, I really thought about this, guys. I thought about just reading all of chapter 7, which is about 54 verses. Well, 53 is, is his message. I just didn't know how to break it up. So I just, can I give you some homework? Um, could you, in your quiet times and devotions, could you just read through chapter 7? What, just to sum it up, what Stephen does is he gives them a history out of the Torah and, and gives them a history of where they've come from. He's speaking to Jews and he wants to tell them, this is where you, don't forget your roots. And all the while, while he's telling them this, and how God, how they've abandoned God and God came through, and he used certain people like Moses and David and Joseph, and then how it got to the point where Jesus, and, and again, like Peter, Stephen's about to tell them, and, and your fathers crucified Jesus, just, just like Peter told them. He wants to, she wants to let them know, I'm not abandoning this rich history we come from. I'm fulfilling it. I'm not running away from Judaism. I'm fulfilling what Christ came to do with the new covenant. Do you understand that is what he's really asking them here. But picture yourself in a court of law here. Stephen is laying out a case here. And then he gets to verse 51. Pick it up in 51. He gets done laying out his case in verses 1 through 51. Or 1 through 50. And he lays it out soundly. This is, this is um, irrefutable evidence of where they've come from as a nation, as a people group, and as a religion. And then he gets to verse 51. And, and this is my sixth point, or my seventh point, I don't know, wherever we're at. Um, and that is this. Don't be shy to close the deal. And in this case, guys, he needed to close it the same way Peter needed to close it, with accusation. Sometimes conviction is the message someone needs to hear. You need to stop and fill in the blank. Rather than, hey, Jesus loves you and it's all good and just come as you are. And some people need to hear a message of, stop what you're doing right now. Or at least an accusatory you're the one who caused this. This destruction in your family, this pain that you're going through, this, when Lynn was talking up here about trials and, and, you know, weathering the storm and stuff, please hear him and me. He's talking about things that you didn't cause. The, the, the grief-stricken husband because his wife has cancer. The grief-stricken spouse because her husband got downsized. The grief-stricken kid because uh, their dad told them they had to move. You know, all of those things. That's what Lynn was talking about. Some people need to hear, you caused the pain. You caused the sin. And, Peter, and Stephen says in verse 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, 
you are doing just as your fathers did. He doesn't end his sermon on, hey, it's okay, God, you know, God's good, we all get a pass every now and then, we all fall down, you know. He says, he calls them stiff-necked, which is this term they use for oxen, where you couldn't move an oxen to left or right. You're just so stiff-necked, I can't even move you. And then he calls them uncircumcised in heart and in ear. Because remember, Jews, the sign of the covenant was what? Circumcision. Peter, or Stephen just gets them right here. You're uncircumcised. Not physically. You could take your robe off and show me you're circumcised. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your ears. You're as, you're as unsaved as they get. Physically, you look great, but, but internally, no, you've missed it. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Verse 54. Then when they heard this, again we see this phrase, they were cut to the quick. It's like they were cut in half with a saw. And they physically began gnashing their teeth at him. Be Stephen right here. The rest of the passage, but, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently to heaven. You know why he gazed intently into heaven? Game is over, Stephen. You lose, and he knew it. He knew, I've got one shot here, and God, should I give him like the, you know, just kind of come as you are, and, you know, Jesus is cool with you, and, or should I give them what they need to hear? And God said, give them what they need to hear, Stephen. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, you're acting like your fathers, and you need to stop it. You need to repent. And they got cut to the quick, and they started gnashing their teeth, and it's at that moment, we've probably all been there at some point, when you know there's nothing else I can say right now. They've made their decision. I've said what I need to say. How's this thing going to play out? But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, now he doesn't even care anymore, right? He's gone. He's, he's as good as dead. And he knows it. He says to these people now that are just gnashing their teeth at him, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and physically, guys, they covered their ears because his words were so penetrating into their darkness, they physically couldn't stand it anymore. Stephen, you've done good here, man. Um... They rushed upon him with one impulse. Now you didn't even get a trial here. The Jewish law was that before you stoned someone, they at least got a trial. Two witnesses had to affirm, confirm what you did. They didn't even give him that. But they cried out with one, rushed him with, and when they had driven him out of this city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Welcome to the party, Saul. Listen to this. And they went on stoning him. By the way, two methods, just really fast. You could, in Old Testament times, there's some debate over how they stone people. One version was you pick a place that's two times your height. Two times your height. You find a wall that's two times your height. You throw them over the wall so it hurts them a little bit. And then you take, typically the victims would take two big stones and throw them at the person. And then the whole community would rush in. Or they just take them outside the city and everyone picks up a rock. And they start going at it. Either way, okay? They start doing that to him. And when they started stoning him, he calls upon the Lord and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. And, and guys, this is where the grace is. This is unbelievable. He doesn't turn around and say, I hope God just punishes each one of you. I hope that God avenges my spirit right here and just kills each one of you in a worse way than I'm getting killed right now. Can you imagine getting hit by rocks? To where it would kill you. He says, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And I love how Luke kind of wraps it up. And having said this, he fell asleep. I almost get this picture that God, God, God saved him from the, the very last like bit of, of physical anguish. Where God just took him right there, his spirit. I want to just real quickly. And Saul, look at this verse 1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. The word there for hearty agreement is that he was pleased and he internally applauded what was happening. 
These people lay their coats at his feet. They pick up rocks. They're chucking them at this innocent man. And this guy that God is going to use to write two-thirds of the New Testament is applauding that. Lest you think that Saul is like, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I wipe my hands clean. He's got to live with this for the rest of his life. Watching, and this isn't the only time, he'll watch Christian apart. He'll rip Christians apart from their homes. He'll imprison Christians just for being Christians and be glad he did it. And we'll talk about how God can save anyone, but I just want to kind of get into our heads. Saul wasn't that great of a guy early on. He was bloodthirsty and he enjoyed watching people get physically killed. And that's the guy God is going to use. Amazing, amazing story here. Sometimes, guys, we got to be rational and logical with our faith. Sometimes we got to say it like it is. And sometimes we got to let the chips fall where they're going to fall. If your faith costs you your job, if it costs you a friendship, if it costs you a relationship, if it costs you financial gain, is it not worth it? Because one day, I'm flying back home in a couple of days. My grandmother passed away last Saturday. Loved the Lord. 94 years old. By the time she died, she was 80 pounds. Emaciated. Isn't it great to think that my grandmother today is just rejoicing in the heavens with Jesus? I just, I love the fact I lost my wife four years ago. And uh, I love the, thinking that Leanne's giving Grammy a tour of heaven. Because Leanne's been there for four years now. And hey, check this out, Grammy. And check this out. And so we're going to go celebrate her life on Saturday. But that's because she knew Jesus Christ. He was in her DNA. And she held faith, faithful to the very end. Can we do the same? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for these faithful men and women. God, I love seeing their faces every Tuesday. It encourages me that there's hope that, um, that we're out there grinding it, Father. And, and I know some people came in today tired and a little bit beat up, a little bit worn out. God, would you refresh them? Would you give them strength to fight the good fight? I know, Father, that it's easy to stand up here and just say, well, we just need to hold firm to the faith. But for some of us tonight, we're just barely holding on. Would you just restore us, Father, tonight? That peace that, that is unspeakable, that surpasses our understanding. Would you just fill people that need it tonight with that? And God, maybe some of us need to dig in a little deeper. We need to memorize some more scripture. We need to figure out why it is I believe what I do. Father, may we have the, the time to do that. And God, may when this is all said and done, uh, may we champion when Paul tells us to run the race well, fight the good fight, that in the end there lays uh, an imperishable wreath for those who are faithful, may that be every person in this room tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you in a couple weeks.